The Start On Demand. On demand. The Prime Minister holds a rare morning press conference and admits when it comes to this SNC-Lavalin-Jody Wilson-Raybould situation, there was an erosion of trust. However, he made no apologies. It's Budget Day for the province and the Canadian Taxpayers Federation weighs in on what they are hoping to see. Liquor store thefts continue. One Winnipegger tells Global News he saw a couple of guys carrying out armloads of booze over the weekend. And they got away scot-free. And we'll talk more about why it is so hard to say goodbye to our favorite shows. With Game of Thrones entering its final season, we'll speak to the Pop Culture Ambassador, a professor on pop culture, on the impact of the HBO smash hit. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Thursday, March 7th podcast for The Start. Just want to quickly mention as well, the Start and Hal Anderson Afternoons are up for Radio Show of the Year at the 4th Annual Winnipeg Nightlife and Lifestyle Awards. We would love for you to cast a vote. WNLA.ca is the website. You can also vote for 680 CJOB for Radio Station of the Year. Did your aides say, it's all right to have a good justice policy, but we have to get elected? Did your aides talk about Quebec politics uh, and your re-election in the context of the criminal prosecution? Uh, there were uh, detailed conversations on a broad range of things that were discussed and, and laid bare in the various testimonies that we, uh, that we heard over the past weeks. What I can tell you is my team uh, and everyone in this government always remains focused on uh, how we make sure that we're protecting jobs and building a better future for Canadians and doing so in a way that protects our institutions. All right, he was asked a lot of questions, but did you hear any answers from those questions? And that's what we're delving into. If you just missed it, Trudeau spoke uh, in the last hour addressing the latest in the testimony against the SNC-Lavalin affair. And to break down what was said or wasn't said, we're joined now by Global News' chief political correspondent, David Aiken. Good morning, David. Good morning, guys. And I'm going to give props to two of my colleagues who are at that press conference, uh, Abigail Beeman, uh, a reporter for Global National, and Amanda Connolly, one of our globalnews.ca reporters. Uh, Amanda asked this question, and it came about 35 minutes into the press conference. And she said, are you apologizing for anything here today? And no, his answer was, he's not. Yes, he said, I'm going to, he's now on his way to uh, Iqaluit, to Nunavut, uh, to apologize to the Inuit there for the way uh, the Canadian government dealt with uh, tuberculosis in the 50s and 60s. It was a terrible, shameful thing that happened in the 50s and 60s. But was he apologizing for all this fallout, two ministers quitting, his principal secretary having to resign? No. And then uh, Abigail Beeman asked with a follow-up saying, listen, you keep saying you were doing all this because you're standing up for jobs. Well, is there any evidence that, quote, 9,000 jobs were at risk? Answer, uh, the company told us that there could be a problem. No, he, basically, there, there's no evidence. There's no report. The PMO was very happy to try to get Jody Wilson-Raybould, while she was Attorney General, go out and get a second legal opinion. Go talk to a former Supreme Court Chief Justice, Beverly McLaughlin. Get that outside counsel on the legal issues. But nobody ever saw, thought, maybe we should get a second opinion for, about SNC-Lavalin's claim that 9,000 jobs in Canada would go poof. SNC-Lavalin has fifteen uh, $15 billion in revenue, uh, billions of dollars in backlog orders. They're building transit systems across the country. That work has to get done. 
And if it's not the people doing it are not getting a paycheck from SNC-Lavalin, they'd be getting a paycheck from somebody, but that work is going to get done. So it seems like the government and the prime minister particularly needed to present some evidence. Remember, they're the evidence-based policy government that jobs would be lost. And the prime minister failed to do so today. And he also said he's not apologizing for anything he's done. Those well, are my big two takeaways. Yeah, well, and I agree with you, David, uh, with regard to the apology. That was what I said I was looking for, an apology to Canadians and to Canadian voters. We definitely did not get that. And we got this sense, on one hand, how important this was, how critical it was that we look at all sides of this affair Yet the follow-up certainly did not match the supposed panic within caucus, within cabinet, within the PMO, because there was very little follow-up with Jody Wilson-Raybould. More or less, everyone was standing around looking, well, she didn't tell us she made a decision. It, It just doesn't add up in my mind. No, and she was quite clear with the record, and her record is not challenged. Uh, the, the facts of the case are not challenged by either the Prime Minister or his Principal Secretary, Jerry Butts. She had several meetings, 11 meetings between her or her staff and Trudeau or the Finance Minister or his senior aides or the PM senior aides. There was 11 meetings at which she said, you got to back off an SNC-Lavalin. I mean, how many meetings does it take, Prime Minister, for you to get the message? Did you want 22 meetings? Did you want 44 meetings? 110 meetings? There was 11 meetings over the space of four months, uh, and two of those involved the Prime Minister himself. Uh, two of them involved his principal secretary. How many times did you need to be told, back off on this SNC-Lavalin thing? You would think that once would have been enough. And presumably Jody Wilson-Raybould thinks once is enough. The prime minister thinks, well, no, it wasn't a done deal. Uh, I I could keep coming back and asking her. So I think it was insufficient on that. And we didn't really get a transparent answer from Trudeau on this issue. Why couldn't you leave Jody Wilson-Raybould in in the justice portfolio? Why did you have to move her? Uh, Yes, she didn't want to take the indigenous services job because, as she said herself, she's been fighting as an indigenous woman her whole life against the Indian Act, and she was going to be damned if she was going to be the one administering the Indian Act. You know, it's, you can see that. That makes sense. But once you refuse that job, why not just let her stay in justice? And he really doesn't have a good answer for that one. David Aiken is Global News Chief Political Correspondent, joining us live on 680 CJOB. David, thank you very much. No problem, guys. Cheers. What has become clear through the various testimonies is that Over the past months, there was an erosion of trust between my office and specifically my former principal secretary and the former Minister of Justice and Attorney General. I was not aware of that erosion of trust as Prime Minister and leader of the federal ministry. I should have been. Mackling McGarry McNabb and the Minister, the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, speaking this morning in a rare morning press conference. And we'll bring in another M here. McKay, Todd McKay from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And we brought you here, Todd, to talk about the provincial budget, and we'll get to that. But, Loren McNabb, I know you want to ask him about the PM. Well, I think we, you were listening the same as we were to try to see if it made us uh, feel one way or another. And the question still is, who do you believe at the end of the day? What's your takeaway from the Prime Minister's comments over the last 45 minutes where he mentioned that erosion of trust but didn't touch a lot of other things, Todd? 
Yeah, listen, I I, uh, I think there's still a lot of questions out there. Were political issues being raised uh, in this context? Is this the right way to to structure things, having the justice minister and the attorney general being the same uh, same person? One of the big concerns I have is, is transparency overall, accountable government overall. None of this would have come out if it hadn't been for a leak in the media. Uh, we might not have talked about any of this. And it really stems back to uh, legislation that was changed to make special deals on corruption prosecutions that was never debated in Parliament. It was slipped into the budget bill last year, over 500 pages. Even MPs didn't see it. A lot of this would have been fixed if we could have had a good open conversation about this and talked through what the process should have been instead of uh, letting it descend into backroom arm wrestling. The question, I think, too, in that is that the prime minister at one point before he became prime minister said he wasn't in favor of those kinds of bills that would allow for all sorts of huge issues to be rolled into one uh, bill with with little debate. Yeah, that's correct. So this is a really bipartisan issue. Governments have been stuffing all kinds of nonsense into legislation for years and years and years. The prime minister, when he was in opposition, blasted uh, Prime Minister Harper for doing this and rightfully so. So Prime Minister Harper shouldn't have been doing that either. Now Justin Trudeau is getting uh, hung on his own uh, on his own omnibus bill, doing what he promised he wouldn't do. A lot of the, uh, this is at the root of that uh, this issue. We're going to have to stop doing these omnibus bills, or we're going to see these things continue to happen. So, Todd, you're in Winnipeg because the province of Manitoba releasing its provincial budget today. Lots of anticipation. One of the questions being asked, banding about, is the idea: perhaps will we see a PST cut? The Conservatives ran on this in the last election. Do you think we'll see that today? I got my fingers crossed. I'm crossing them right now. I'd love to see that. Look, uh, PST is high. It's costing Manitobans a lot of money. Uh, that uh, PST hike was never supposed to happen. It's about $300 million a year. It needs to come back down. That needs to happen. Uh, that was a, a concrete promise made by this government. Now, I kind of feel like a kid on Christmas, right? You're hoping for that new bicycle, but you know it might not be there. So I don't want to get my hopes too high. It needs to happen, if not in this budget, the next one. Uh, but certainly uh, Manitobans need some tax relief. How do you replace that? How do you replace that amount of money? Yeah, that's the tough part, and that's what makes governing uh, difficult. You have to restrain spending. I mean, that's the bottom line. You have to get that spending under control. Even in the last number of years, we continue to see spending increase. And listen, uh, all of us know with our family budgets, small business budgets, if you have less money, you need to spend less money. We don't see governments doing that. We see them continue to increase spending, even if they're uh, short on cash. We need to see more restraint on that front. It's not easy. I don't pretend it is. Uh, but certainly that's that's where it needs to happen. The other factor to that, though, is that Manitoba's uh, tax burden overall is uncompetitive. Manitobans pay much more in tax than folks in Saskatchewan do. That sends business across the line. And, hey, welcome uh, to Saskatchewan for those folks who go over there. But we need to increase the economy here. We need to make Manitoba more competitive. That's good for Manitobans. Uh, and as a side note, that's generally good for government too. You see their revenues go up as well. So that's uh, that's part of the equation as well. Are there, are there any spots where you think that they could continue to reduce spending? Yeah, listen, one of the things that drives me the most crazy is corporate welfare. So we saw an announcement a few uh, months ago where uh, the government gave $1.5 million to Canada Goose uh, to train people how to run sewing machines. Canada Goose sells jackets for 1000 bucks a crack. The, the, it's a multinational company worth billions. It didn't need taxpayers' money. Stop doing this nonsense. But that was a federal government subsidy, right? Well, the province was in on that one okay. as well. Yeah. So that's really frustrating. I mean, listen, if you'd have cut taxes across the board, 
you know, you probably would have seen uh, increased uh, jobs at Canada Goose, but you also would have seen it at the little, you know, plumbing supply store down the road. Let's have broad-based tax cuts instead of doling out corporate welfare. When it comes to taxes, and and I don't know if I, I don't want to speak for everyone. Now that the PST has been in for several years, I, I don't feel it anymore. And so that you, you do hear on the streets saying, "Well, we're we're already at eight percent, and that money's going towards roads. What's the big deal? Keep it. Is it really a thing that people, when moving to the province, look at and say it's eight percent versus seven versus six? Is it, how much at the end of the day does that one percent reduction make to the average Manitoban? Yeah, that's one of the problems with this sort of thing. You, you're the frog in the pot getting boiled slowly, right? And you don't notice it. Until it's a big, big problem. Uh, and then you start to really see it. The other thing is, though, that even if you're not consciously seeing it, it can change your decisions, right? And so that's money that you're not reinvesting into home renovations. That's not money that you're putting into your business to create jobs, that kind of stuff. All of that's being sucked out of the economy and slowing it down. So you still need to – it's still an important thing to keep in mind. And competitiveness really is a big issue. If you're a, a business looking for a place to go, that is absolutely something that you look at really carefully. How do you square the circle Manitoba? Uh, doing as well as pretty much any other province economically is it your insistence that Manitoba would be doing even better if they were doing the things that you're proposing Todd yeah you bet of course of course even if you're doing great you should always look for ways to do better and certainly Manitobans have been paying a lot of tax for a long time they need some relief uh, the other side to look at that is certainly when you look at some other provinces particularly here in western Canada they've been really struggling due to a lot of things so just because you're doing better than some other really uh, struggling provinces, that's not something to totally hang your hat on. We still need to see that competitiveness. An opportunity to perhaps take advantage of the fact that Saskatchewan and Alberta maybe aren't doing as well as, as they are used to doing. Of course. This is a huge opportunity. Now's the time to uh, make some big progress, and now's the time to get some tax relief. Todd, this... Uh no, go ahead, Lorraine. No. I would, no, I was just going to say, he's a kid on Christmas. If you don't get the PST reduction and you don't get any changes to what you call corporate welfare, is it, what, what's, what's your, okay, mom, I'll accept that as a present. Yeah, listen, uh, sort of the, the socks and underwear under the tree, <laughs> yeah. I think in this case is, is we've got to get that deficit uh, getting smaller. But, but why? I think people have a hard time with that because you yeah. have to spend the money. You look at this $400 million, it seems huge. What, short, as quick as you can, why should I care if there's that $400 million versus $500 million? Because we're spending a billion dollars on interest payments on the debt. That's why. A billion dollars. That's twice what the, the uh, school board's uh, total budget is here in uh, Winnipeg. A billion dollars that doesn't go to schools and hospitals, just interest on the debt. That number keeps going up as we keep increasing debt. Todd, this uh, frog that's boiling in the pot, is that frog alive in this metaphor? <laughs> Please let it be alive. He's wiggling. He's kicking. Oh He's, my doing God. He's doing his that's best. He's doing his best. But he needs help. He needs help. I like all these metaphors. Frog in a pot, kid at, kid, kid at Christmas. You know, it Todd all works. Todd McKay is the Prairie Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation joining us live in studio on CJOB. Todd, thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. We start this half hour with more brazen daylight liquor store thefts as they continue around Winnipeg. Yeah, here we go again, guys. We have discussed this many times in the past several months. Liquor marts are not just a quick one-stop shop for paying customers, but apparently for criminals as well. It's almost like a buffet. Brazen daylight thefts have been an ongoing problem at stores around Manitoba, leaving paying customers to wonder what is being done about it. Winnipegger Ryan Watson told Global News he saw two men walk out with, quote, armloads of booze at the liquor store on Lee Avenue and McPhillip Street Sunday afternoon. 
As Global's Brittany Greenslade tells us, it would appear police, Liquor Commission representatives, and the minister responsible for MLLC seem to be tired of discussing this continuing saga themselves. Liquor marts are no longer a one-stop shop to pick up booze. They're hot spots for criminals. They just casually walked right on out. An ongoing problem that has become all too common. Ryan Watson witnessed a shocking theft at this liquor mart on Leela and McPhillips Sunday afternoon. Two guys uh, had arms full of bottles. I don't mean like one under their jacket uh, hiding it. They had uh, arms full, probably four or five bottles each, uh, out in the open, plain as day. They weren't rushing or running or anything like that. Walked past the line, and they didn't talk to anybody, but walked past the line on their way out, so they never tried to go out the entrance. And the, uh, one of the cashiers uh, sarcastically said, OK, thanks, gentlemen, have a good night. Watson says the two men then got into a car and left, and no one attempted to intervene. Uh, the security guard never came out to see if he could uh, identify a vehicle, identify other people, a license plate, nothing like that. It was sort of just throw our hands up and, uh, you know, it's just something we have to accept. According to Manitoba Liquor and Lotteries, there were just 658 liquor store thefts in 2017. But that number skyrocketed in 2018 to more than 2,600. Since February, MBLL has been working with Winnipeg Police, saying they're currently trying and evaluating different tactics, which includes using the WPS's Special Duty Constable Service. The Liquor Commission, Winnipeg Police Service, and the minister responsible for liquor and lotteries refused all interview requests from Global News. Brittany Greenslade, Global News. So... What are we going to do about this? I know we had a very extensive conversation, what, about three weeks ago on this program, had some outstanding suggestions from our listeners, but it continues to happen and no changes in policy seem to be taking place. Yeah, one of our listeners, Bear, texting us saying, still can't understand why they don't go to the retail model that consumers distributing used. The only thing that got stolen were pencils. And that was part of our discussion a couple of weeks back. And that would be you go to a counter, you order, and they go to the back and bring it. Just takes away your whole shopping experience, though. So I can appreciate why they they don't want to go that way. And are they looking at it like what percentage of this theft is accounting for our losses? And are we still coming out ahead? And is that part of the conversation that's happening? Are they paying for guards, though, that aren't doing anything? So why have the guards? Maybe if you're going to let them steal and lose money that way, then why have why pay for the guards? Somebody called them. uh, And this is without disrespect to the people that have been hired to do this, but they're essentially greeters. Yeah. And they're probably writing down maybe yeah. what was stolen, and that might be the extent of it. They're there to be a deterrent, but they are deterring all the wrong people. They're deterring people that wouldn't steal anything in the first place. And we've seen security guards in other situations, and we know of them in the malls and whatnot, where they chase people down and they stop them after they steal something. So uh, part, of me, part of me does, like, so the, the MLCC or... MBLL, as they're now called, came out yesterday with a statement, which is pretty much cookie cutter statement that they gave us a month ago and a month before that. They're clearly tired of talking about it. And I do wonder if the strategy is the more we talk about it, the more everybody gets this idea in their head that they can just walk into a liquor store and walk out with without any issues. So is there a suggestion that the media shouldn't be talking about this? They're saying that they don't want to talk about it because it impacts their security measures and they don't, it'd be the same way that, for example, when Obama was here on Monday, they didn't give into detail exactly how many people they're going to have and how they're going to do it because that could be used as intel. I don't, I don't think they've said that the media is the problem. They're saying we're not talking about it, period. And I'm inferring that that might be, might be why. 
That's interesting. And then just another thought as well on the the consumer's model. It, I think it works in some beer vendors, right? Like there are some smaller beer vendors where you sure. know, like that's the kind of thing where you walk in, you know exactly what you want. Give me a 12 of Miller High Life or whatever, or 12 of Bud Light. You know, you, you don't, you're not going in to browse. So in that case it would work. But yeah, if you walk into a liquor mart and you go, well, I kind of feel like wine tonight. But, well, if you go to that model, you, you there's no way you can pick, right? You're not going to stand and look at a catalog. But what about in – so the the cannabis stores now are are like a consumer distributing model in that you go in and they have the product listed in some of them that when I was in for when they opened uh, in October, I you could smell the different kinds and then you go to the counter and they go into a locked area and actually bring the cannabis to you. So they still have a shopping experience without – any of the product being out there, oh, but, you're, but you're not buying. You're not buying a 24 pack of cannabis, and what, like the the storage implications, a are completely different. The display implications are completely different in terms of the number of options that you have at a liquor store sure. versus a cannabis Absolutely. store is multiple Absolutely. hundreds, hundreds times more. more choices, yes, right? So, for sure, but the, the, that is the model. So. Um, if, uh, you either allow for more stores or different kinds of stores. Like there has, I, I just don't know if that's the way to go. Or, or again, I wonder if they just keep thinking this is a blip on oh. on their theft radar, and that maybe it's just been a really bad year, and it'll start to come down at some point. Well, they just need a velvet rope across the door. It worked in Vegas quite nicely. Just velvet rope. Everybody obeys a velvet rope. Yeah. Yep. Just ask for some ID and. If you haven't got ID, people just scurry away. If you have bad intentions, the velvet rope will scare you off. We start this hour at the liquor store. Yeah, brazen daylight thefts. We've been talking about this for several months now, that these thefts at liquor stores are leaving many paying customers to wonder what's going to be done about it. As you just heard in the news with Jeff Braun, Winnipegger Ryan Watson was incredulous this past weekend when he saw two men walk out with what he called armloads of booze at the liquor store on Leela and McPhillips on Sunday. Uh, the security guard never came out to see if he could uh, identify a vehicle, identify other people, a license plate, nothing like that. It was sort of just throw our hands up and uh, something we have to accept. But, I mean, as a Canadian, as a Manitoban, as a Winnipegger, I think it's beyond silly. So, what can be done about this? What should be done about this? Stephen O'Keefe is a consultant with Bottom Line Matters and works with retailers and vendors in the areas of loss prevention and risk management. And, uh, Stephen, thank you for taking taking some time with us. Uh, when Loren reached out to you, I understand you were all over this story. You, you'd heard about this. Uh, yeah, I heard about uh, this story. There's a couple of other provinces that have similar issues in in uh, kind of the category of liquor stores. Um, so it's it's not something that is unique to the province. So we're not alone with these brazen thefts in liquor stores. So it, we can't say it's a specific Manitoba issue. Is it an issue of how we're dealing with thefts and what security officials are being instructed to do? Yeah, there's a combination of issues and, and just... To, to be clear, um, the liquor stores and Manitoba liquor in particular are are not um, they're not standalone unique uh, when they tell their staff not to arrest. So I'm talking about 
regular employees. Regular employees just across the country, and and uh, and it's good practice, are told not to make arrests um, for a number of reasons. One is under the criminal code, they may not have all of the elements to be able to execute a proper arrest. And second, there's been a lot of um, uh, new legislation around the licensing of private investigators and, and uh, and then thirdly, probably the most important is the safety aspect in order to make a safe arrest. So um, with the amount of technology that's now available, um, you really don't have to arrest people on the spot. You can still work with police and execute an arrest after the fact, which I understand just from reading some of the material. Let me make it clear. Manitoba Liquor is not my client. Um and so just reading some of the material, uh, they're probably doing the same thing that I know a lot of retailers are doing is collecting the evidence and then having police knock on someone's door and arresting them after the fact. It might be a day later, it might be weeks later, but they have the evidence to be able to uh, support a prosecution in criminal court. So Stephen, I understand why the employees would be encouraged not to intervene, but they've got security guards. If the security guards aren't going to intervene either, what's the point of having security guards? Uh, to collect the evidence, to be able to make a statement, um, to be able to go to court and and uh, provide that evidence to the courts to make a decision. Um, and also, uh, just uh, an important consideration here is under the Private Investigator Security Guards Act of Manitoba, there is um, recommendations that your best course of action from a safety standpoint is to involve police. And so if the security guard in that case is told uh, to manage the doors uh, and uh, collect evidence on behalf of the retailer um, and not make an an arrest, they're following the instructions of their, if this is a third-party security guard company, they're following the instructions of their client. And so they take the advice just because a retailer engages the service of a security guard doesn't mean that that security guard has carte blanche to do what they want. Uh, They have to act under the contract with the retailer. And if the retailer decides we will not make arrests, we're going to collect that evidence. uh, And we don't want to make arrests for a number of reasons. We don't want our regular customers being in harm's way if an arrest outside goes sideways. Um, uh, then that's something that uh, they do on behalf of uh, the retailer through a contract. So I can appreciate where you're coming from and where I think we've heard before in the past uh, the issue of keeping the staff safe, and I understand that. Uh, and we're talking to Stephen O'Keefe, who's in the consultant in the area of security and theft, and, and this is why we're reaching out to you, Stephen, because on the other hand, while I appreciate keeping people st- safe, there's a question of the burden that then puts on police to go chasing after people that maybe could have been stopped in other ways. You know, now you're taxing the resources of the police services to chase booze thefts. So what else can be done in the stores if it's not the security guards stopping? Is there another system we need to put in place, another layer, whether it's, you know, carting at the door or whatnot, that might help in this matter? Yeah, so there are a number of things from a preventative standpoint, and that's always your, uh, you know, your your best course of action, your first uh, um uh, your first program should be one of preventative measures uh, is one of, um, you know, putting in security gates at the door that are motion controlled access so that somebody can't leave through that same entrance. They have to, uh, you know, be, be drawn towards a, a cashier. 
um, the uh, aggressive hospitality, uh, challenging people who look suspicious is always great preventative measures and, and never upsets the honest customer because it's seen as, as great customer service. And then there's technology around uh, electronic article surveillance, and I won't promote any one particular uh, company because there are different systems by different companies, but those are the security tags that ring as you're exiting or release a die tag um, um, or uh, do a number of things. There's two alarm systems where as soon as you exit uh, the the um, uh, the bottle um, security tag that surrounds the, the neck of the bottle starts ringing uh, very loud in the parking lot to kind of draw people's attention to the fact that somebody has just stolen product so it doesn't just ring at the door, it rings on the actual product. And then there's CCTV, and uh, so that's secure, the security cameras and the analytics, the software that comes with it to be able to identify uh, when people might be lingering around an area too long. Uh, security systems have that capability. And one of the things that we try not to do is talk about some of the uh, technology that we can use or technology that can beat our systems because it uh, it's really not something that in the public domain you really uh, want to have out there. You want to keep some of these uh, technologies uh, secret, but then other ones you want to be overt. And you want to let people know, uh, you know, we want to protect this merchandise. So, Stephen, a couple of the ideas that we've had, Loren alluded to it uh, just off the top of that last question, the idea of maybe having a system where you have to present your ID on the way into the liquor store, almost like a nightclub set up. Uh, didn't you hear you endorse or uh, deny that that might be a good idea? And the other one that a lot of our listeners have suggested to us is just an idea of where all of the inventory would behind a ca- be behind a counter of some sort and you would come in and, and order it. Is that, that something that you see as a possibility for, for liquor stores in particular down the road? So we'll talk about the difference between possibility and probability. It's always a possibility to do something like that. In terms of probability, I would say uh, that as a retailer, you won't find that um, too many people are in favor of doing that from a retail standpoint. Um, customer comes first. We always have to be prepared to uh, deal with people who are not acting appropriate. But the priority of any retailer is to sell merchandise to a customer to make to customer to make that um, experience easy, to make that experience friendly, not to make it restrictive. And so there is an element. And while you know this is the type of thing where it's not a dollars and cents because there's activity where people are stealing product and they're observed by other customers and so uh you know it's kind of a hard pill to swallow um but there is a portion of losses where you can say it is somewhat acceptable i'm not saying that theft is acceptable i'm saying that as a retailer if you have to prioritize and invest you're going to invest in selling merchandise to your honest customers um, in terms of the other piece, you have to mitigate your risk. You have to look at it and say, okay, well, I do have shoplifting because I have the commodity that people want. I mean, it's uh, it's kind of a double whammy in terms of liquor stores because people who are typically um, looking for liquor uh, might steal merchandise in a department store and then go on the street and sell it for 25 cents on the dollar, collect that cash, and then go in and buy a bottle of booze. In this case, they're stealing the product that they're addicted to. So it, it's kind of a double whammy. Uh, you know, everybody's sensitive to 
what retailers uh, who are selling alcohol have to go through. Um, but the reality is, as an honest customer, if I'm going to come in and buy a bottle of wine, I don't want to wait in line as uh, in the 80s you had to do with consumers distributing uh, and you had to present the ticket and people went in the back, got the product, and then you paid for it and you were given that. I don't want to be uh, seen as suspicious if I'm an honest customer coming in to get the bottle of wine. I want to come in, I want to buy it quickly, and I want to leave. Unfortunately, that type of experience also gives the opportunity for those who are dishonest to be able to steal and get away with it. Stephen O'Keefe is a consultant with Bottom Line Matters and works with retailers and vendors in the area of loss prevention and risk management. Joining us live on CJOB, Stephen, thank you very much for this. Thank you. We start with a game show. With an answer. What was the answer you gave? Who The answer was a man undaunted in the face of learning he has pancreatic cancer. And uh, it would be who is Jeopardy host Alex Trebek. That's right. He made an announcement and it is the number one trending video on YouTube this morning. Hi, everyone. I have some news to share with all of you. And it's in keeping with my longtime policy of being open and transparent with our Jeopardy fan base. I also wanted to prevent you from reading or hearing some overblown or inaccurate reports regarding my health. So therefore, I wanted to be the one to pass along this information. Now, just like 50,000 other people in the United States each year, this week I was diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer. Now normally the prognosis for this is not very encouraging, but I'm going to fight this. And I'm going to keep working, and with the love and support of my family and friends, and with the help of your prayers also, I plan to beat the low survival rate statistics for this disease. Truth told, I have to, because under the terms of my contract, I have to host Jeopardy for three more years. So help me, keep the faith, and we'll win. We'll get it done. Thank you. Classy, classy, classy. And you know what? This announcement, this video has managed to do something very few stories do, and that's to unite social media en masse. The Sudbury, Ontario-born game show host shared this news on the Jeopardy! YouTube channel. As you mentioned, Brett, it's also been shared already millions of times on Twitter and other platforms of social media. Trebek is 78 years old and one of the most popular TV hosts of all time. And if you're into documentaries and game shows, there's one Netflix documentary called Game Changers you may enjoy. TV Game Shows. This is their story. This is Game Changers. Now, legendary host Alex Trebek takes us on a personal journey. All game show hosts are very talented. So why have some of us been around so long? Why have we endured? As he tries to answer the ultimate question, why do game shows continue to be one of the most loved and enduring genres in the global television landscape? But when television started, I was thrilled to death because that was my medium. That was the voice of Winnipegger Monty Hall in conversation with Sudbury-born Alex Trebek. How incredible is it that two of the most popular game show hosts of all time, maybe on the planet, definitely in North America, 
One was born in northern on North, northern Ontario, and another was born in Winnipeg. I Absolutely actually, incredible. Until you brought this up this morning, it never really occurred to me. I, you know, you, I think of Monty Hall, like Winnipegger for sure, and you know Trebek's Canadian. But then when you stop and say two of them, and you're right, like popular, long running. How long has Trebek been on the Air Force? 30, 35 years, I think, since 84? All wow. of that. All uh, of our years. Yes, yes. It's, I'm going to uh, pretend to be 35, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, when did, did, did you watch Jeopardy at any point? Was it part of your routine? Oh, or? yeah, no, because, I mean, especially back with no cable on the farm, you come home and you had a couple choices at 5, 5.30, 6 kind of thing, and Trebek was one of them. I used to uh, hang out with a young woman who would watch the show at 5 o'clock, and then we would watch it at 5.30, and she suddenly got really good at the game. I'm like, what's going on here? I used to beat you. You're watching the early episode, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I'm watching the early episode. Nice. <laughs> That's cool that you, you had that... Common interest, Jeopardy. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, thank you very much for joining us this morning on 680 CJOB. Question of the day brought to you by Credit Aid, helping Manitobans get out of debt since 1992. Visit creditaid.ca, call 204-987-6890. Who's more credible? Jody Wilson-Raybould, Gerald Butts, Justin Trudeau, or none of them? So far... Jody Wilson-Raybould leading that pack with 50%. 33% say none of them. 10% Gerald Butts. And at the bottom, Justin Trudeau. I can't do the math that fast. I want to say 7%? Uh, six. Six. I'm, I'm rounding Did up. You I randomly just do round the math? up here and there. No. Oh. Because it's uh, it's 33.33% oh, okay. and 10.42. So I guess it would be seven, yeah, uh, to make up for that. But, yeah. Trudeau at the bottom after what he had to say this morning. There's also a few that have been writing in this morning that have been making a point that I think is interesting about just that that middle ground. Like they might believe none of them or they believe both of them and say somewhere in the middle there was a fight. Mm-hmm. And uh, do we decide now that we're ready to let that fight go and move on? Or do you still have more questions? Well, the question is going to be there's a line between impropriety and and something that's been done illegally. And I think... The bottom line on that is we don't know the answer. Was it inappropriate, just a squabble or misunderstanding amongst coworkers, or was something illegal done? And until we can definitively answer that, this is not going away anytime soon as much as the prime minister would like it to go away. Well, I think that was his point of his news conference this morning. He spoke for about 45 minutes, I want to say, and answered a lot of questions, not not always giving an answer in those questions. He said words he didn't always answer questions. I don't know if it's a legal question. The ethical line that was drawn for, for me a few weeks ago was the idea of whether or not he raised the issue of votes in those conversations with her. And he was asked that question twice. But did you or your aides bring up the election in Quebec that was coming, the by-election and then the subsequent fall election when it comes down to SNC-Lavalin. And he basically said they had a number of conversations and lots of things were discussed, but he never said yes or no. So there's a line there, if if that's your ethical line, which has been raised by some as their line. Are you telling me that a prominent politician <laughs> didn't, answer, didn't a question? answer a question? I am telling you that. And you know what's so funny for me to sit here now because I used to be that reporter in the room asking those questions and you heard me shout this morning, well, ask him! Here's the follow-up! Like, and yeah. I was screaming and then, but you know, like, I, somewhere there's the truth that still hasn't been heard, I, I don't think, but... Um, there's no concern on your part that 
There's been a, a legal line crossed here. You you think the gray area exists only with le- regard to impropriety? I'm just trying to. There are, le- there are legal questions, but for me, really, the question is when it comes to when, when you did something inappropriate, that is if you said you should do this so we can win an election. That's the line. And on an ethical scale. So when does it become a legal well, question? Well, RCMP have been asked to look into that, mm-hmm. and I'm not really sure, and this is just being honest, I don't know what would be the legal impropriety there unless there's a purchasing or selling or buying of votes or, or that kind of thing. I don't I don't know. Some suggest that it's illegal once the Attorney General slash Justice Minister has made her decision apparent to everyone else, and I think that's why we're having the discussion of exactly when did jo- Jody Wilson-Raybould make that known to caucus, to cabinet, because there seems to be a divergence of understanding of up to three months on this. September 16th, right. she said she'd made up her mind, and December 5th, Gerald Butts is saying, well, we're still talking about it. That's a very, very gigantic chasm. In terms of number of days that this was was hanging out there as undecided in the minds of of decision makers. And that's why I say I don't know if we'll ever be able to go down a legal road because she's saying she told them, leave me alone. I've made up my mind. And Gerald Butts is saying, I never heard that. And if I thought you had made up your mind, we wouldn't have ever gone down that road. He doesn't understand it. So I just don't know if we'll ever know if that line was crossed legally that that's a great question, Greg, and I, it's worth it, – it's obviously worth pursuing why answer. the RCMP are, are, are talking about that, that we've received that request to look into it. One word answer. Is it time for the attorney general to be part and parcel uh, and separated from the cabinet? Yeah, I don't – you raised this up earlier this week and then I was like, you're right. Why on earth is an elected official in charge, basically your top lawyer judge and lawyer country. of the yeah. country? You can also take the poll on our Twitter, 680CJOB. Make sure you follow us there. Jody Wilson-Raybould out in front as well in the Who's More Credible question at 54%. Also follow us on Facebook and be sure to follow us on Instagram. We wanted to have this conversation yesterday with Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, but we got preempted at 9.35 by the testimony of Gerald Butts. So we will have the conversation today. I know death. He's got many faces. I look forward to seeing this one. Game of Thrones, arguably the most popular TV show on the planet, released the trailer for the final season just this past Tuesday. Naturally, fans of the show losing their minds. And many are sad because... It's the final season, so the trailer is kind of the beginning of the end. For more on the cultural impact of this show, we turn to the pop culture ambassador, Robert Thompson, who is a professor of television, radio, film, and pop culture at Syracuse University. We spoke to him, in fact, on Tuesday, and we asked him, are you a fan? Of Game of Thrones. Well, I've been watching it from the start. Uh, I think maybe sometimes I'm not smart enough for this show. If you were to, I've seen every episode probably twice at least, some more than that. If you were to give me a quiz about Game of Thrones and all the houses and castles and all the rest of it, I might get a C minus. 
Well, I, I, I think only the heartiest of, of diehard fans would be expected to know the house mottos and the various crests and all that stuff. The other thing is I'm finding when I watched, of course, this uh, long-awaited uh, trailer that uh, was just released that everybody is so excited uh, about, uh, it reminds me how I really need to go back and review what happened. Uh, the last time we saw a new episode of Game of Thrones was, it seems like, back in the Jimmy Carter administration. Uh, it was actually August 27th, uh, 2017. Uh, but that was a long time ago. There are movie series that actually have uh, their sequels come out with less time in between. 2017, I forgot it's been that long. I still remember sitting on my couch and having one of the, the crucial moments of the series spoiled because I had, it was late getting to watch the show and then I, I saw a spoiler on YouTube. So I, I'm now reliving that anger that I felt. But oh, boy. The, the popularity of this show, like, do you ever think that we're going to see a show as popular as this in terms of a global scale ever again? Well, there's no reason to think that uh, we won't. I mean, this started way back in 2011, and an awful lot has changed since 2011. Pay cable, HBO was still a, a... major way in which people uh, watch this kind of programming. Now the whole nature of HBO may be changing with the new uh, mergers and all of that kind of uh, all that kind of thing. And it started, though, back in, what, 2.5 million, I think, is the viewers of uh, uh, average viewers of season one. Uh, season seven, the one that ended in 2017, had over 10 uh, million viewers. And, of course, that was when we'd already gone into the age of Netflix and Hulu and streaming and all the radical changes uh, that have happened. I think if, if, if somebody comes out with a show that is as extraordinarily kind of exciting and well-acted and well-written um, uh, as Game of Thrones, it, it could come out in a streaming service, it could come out on cable, it could, uh, uh, I don't think there's any reason to think that uh, we will never have, uh, again, have a show that 10 million people will get excited about uh, in this country, and then, of course, as you point out, globally as well. Well, Robert, we were discussing this uh, yesterday on the air, this idea of the relationships we have with these programs. And you mentioned the changes that have taken place over the last decade or so in terms of how we consume these things. The fact that you don't necessarily have a week in between episodes and that some people will binge these shows episode after episode after episode, does it and will it change the relationships we have with the characters, with the program itself? Well, it's, I mean, clearly binging uh, has already uh, changed that. And, and binging goes, you know, Netflix takes a lot of credit for uh, binging because they started releasing series, uh, uh, all episodes uh, at once. Uh, but people were starting to binge ever since. You couldn't do this much in the old VHS days because they didn't release entire seasons of VHS. It would uh, take up a shelf to, uh, uh, to do that. But once we started getting the DVD box sets, even back in the early days of The Sopranos and that show 24, uh, I, I talked to many people who were waiting until the season was over and they could watch the whole thing uh, in, in big chunks. And, you know, when it comes to binging, there, there is nothing like a show like Game of Thrones. Uh, uh, the pleasure one can get in sitting down, uh, if you hadn't started from the beginning, and watching four or five episodes uh, of a show like that in a row 
is a really, really unique pleasure that there's nothing quite like. Um, however, it is different. It's like when we read a Dickens novel, we can read it at our uh, leisure and we can read as much as we want. Uh, originally, Dickens novels came, came out as serials, just like Game of Thrones. That's right. Good comparison. And by the way, I'm and so I'm glad. I'm sure people were all into those characters and speculating what was going to happen. I'm sure that it was the equivalent of spoiler alerts. I haven't read this uh, 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 this week's issue yet. Don't tell me because I'm going to read it uh, tonight. We have no evidence of that, of course, because there were no places where people were having those conversations uh, in ways that survive to this day. Robert Thompson is a pop culture ambassador. I want that title. Professor of television, radio, film, and pop culture at Syracuse University. We're talking about the cultural impact of Game of Thrones in the wake of Tuesday's arrival of the trailer for the final season of the show. And by the way, I'm super glad you mentioned 24 because that was on my radar in terms of one of the first shows that really triggered the whole binging kind of landscape that we see in our culture today. And another show that got binged hardcore in the lead up to the f- the final season and the uh, end of yeah. the show is Breaking Bad. That was a show yeah, that that, I, that seemed, just based on my observation, its popularity grew by leaps and bounds in that final run. You, you are absolutely right about that. Breaking Bad was a, a brilliant show from start to finish. I think one of the great shows uh, uh, in television history. But even though it was a show that played on the AMC network, I think Breaking Bad was essentially uh, made its mark uh, by people who were slowly but surely hearing about it. And then you're absolutely right, that incredible lead up uh, to the final season. And people were binging so they could catch up for, uh, in time uh, for the final season to happen. That show was a much bigger hit thanks to the ability to watch it on streaming services uh, than I think it ever uh, would have been otherwise. Do you think then that as we approach the final season of Game of Thrones that its popularity is going to surge even more so than it already is? Well, uh, this is not scientific evidence, but anecdotal evidence. I know a lot of people, both students and colleagues, who have been you know, hearing about this final season and everything, and who are now, just like Breaking Bad, desperately trying to uh, catch up. And the problem with uh, having uh, uh, friends that do that is while they're doing it, they don't want to talk about anything else but the four episodes that they watched the night before. And I guess the final. There's only six in this new upcoming season, though I understand some of them, maybe all of them, I don't know, are going to be uh, uh, 90 minutes long, but it will be the shortest of, uh, you know, the first six seasons were 10 episodes, last season was seven. Uh, this will be only six, but I, I think they're going to be extended late length, or that's what people are saying. Yeah, some of them will be extended, and I think they're spending $15 million on each episode. Uh, so it's essentially a blockbuster film in six parts. And, uh, yeah, you know, that, that is so incredible. Incredible. When I started studying television in the 1980s, that would have been uh, the budget for an entire season. An hour-long uh, 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 episode in the early 80s was about uh, three-quarters of a million dollars. A lot of people are sad about the fact that now that the trailer is here, it's really kind of the beginning of the end. And once Game of Thrones is gone, everyone's going to be sad. 
Yeah, and I can perfectly understand that. I mean, this thing has been going on since uh, uh, 2011, and of course you do it did have to take major breaks from it. But uh, uh, any good art, uh, one if it's good, one becomes engaged in it, and when it goes away, think of how people felt when the last Harry Potter book came out, and then the last Harry Potter movie, when Friends uh, 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 stopped, uh, Beverly Hills 90210. Um, these are generational uh, things. And, of course, they're not our friends or our family, uh, uh, but we do spend sometimes an awful lot of time watching these things, having conversations and engaging about them. And when no new material uh, is coming, there, there is a sense, it sounds silly, but there is, I think, a sense of loss. Robert Thompson is a pop culture ambassador. He's a professor of television, radio, film, and pop culture at Syracuse University, and we've been talking about Game of Thrones. They released the trailer for the final season on Tuesday, and people are excited but also sad. And Tim texted us saying, I'm sad. I have to rewatch Game of Thrones from the start. Too long in between seasons. As Robert said, it's been since August of 2017 since the show has been on. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's been a long time. But Tim, are you, are you really sad that you have to watch the show again? I kind of like that. Like when you go get to go back and fill in some gaps and then you sometimes see things. Like I got halfway through a book on the weekend before I realized I'd read the darn thing really? before. Yeah. <laughs> But but it was it was great. So the show maybe he'll watch it and be like, I, I look at all the stuff I missed. Well, suits I binged and watched on my own for a few years, and then Jackie discovered it, and I was like, Oh, why come do you on. say it like that? Well, because you know it's nice to have your own things every once in like a, a while. Like a TV affair? You no, know, it's just my own thing. And then <laughs> oh, this is really good. I'm like, Yeah, it's really good. So we're going to go, <laughs> then go right back to the beginning and, and rewatch all the episodes. And you know, suits for as quote unquote good as it is, it's not rocket science television. Yeah, time you know, to watch again. It's hard to watch again because it's not overly complicated. It's not like, oh, I never realized that Mike has a really good memory and that's the whole key to the program. <laughs> no, it's perfectly obvious, right? And so uh, I did it grudgingly, but I, I understand the, the appeal of the binge and I also understand the appeal and the, and the, and the fun of, of watching it over and over again. Look at Friends. Yeah. How often you go just go, yeah, I'm going to go on Netflix just – randomly search a, an episode and I love how they title them. It's it's the one with yeah. and it typically it's the perfect. It's like, oh yeah, you know exactly that. which one it is. I'm waiting for a study to come out 10 years from now that says Netflix is responsible for the demise of relationships though because <laughs> it allows you to just rewatch things over and over again. Like, like my husband was so happy when The Office was finally over because I just love that show. But he I'll, did not? I will, he liked it. He just doesn't. I was in love with it and I will rewatch episodes over and over again and he'll come home and be like, oh, come on, like you've seen this one. And then on the other hand, you mentioned liking to watch things alone. Well, now we don't sit down on the couch together as much because, you know, you have all your tablets and devices and you can all be in different rooms watching different things. So, yeah, there'll be like some sort of Berkeley study in 2020 saying divorce is up because I of don't Netflix. even have Bill Maher to myself anymore. Oh, my. Started like wow, that you're really too. angry about this. <sighs> well, it- just one final thought on Game of Thrones. Tim, it might benefit you because when I went back and watched it again, I'd only watched it when it aired season by season. Yeah. 
by the time I got to the fifth season, I was realizing, like, I don't even know who half these people are. Mm-hmm. Because the show's on for ten episodes, it disappears for a year. So when I went back and rewatched it all the way through, I connected so many dots that I just didn't make sense. Do they get money? Like, from the re- like is the rewatching a way to get more money in terms of views or anything like oh, that? Or no? It could be, because I watched it through HBO's on-demand Like, you ordered service. it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I would imagine... Because I'm a subscriber to HBO. I think it's $100 million bucks a year that goes to uh, the, the producers of Friends, at least, to keep it on Netflix. That's right. Lot of dole. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think. And hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global. And on Instagram, at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.